seated. I invite you to take uh, your Bibles and turn with me now to our New Testament passage. You can use the Pew Bible on the rack in front of you. You can find our text on uh, page 829. It's uh, Matthew 24. We'll be in the first uh, 28 uh, verses this morning. This is known as the Olivet Discourse. It happens on the Mount of Olives, and Jesus discourses. He teaches. It's pretty famous. I sat down uh, this week to begin preparing my sermon. I had my notebook out and a nice hot cup of coffee. And I opened my favorite commentary and the first line said, few chapters in the Bible have elicited more disagreement among interpreters than Matthew 24. And I thought it's going to be a fun week. But then I realized if smart people disagree on Matthew 24, what about the rest of us, right? So you're probably going to disagree with me, and you're probably going to disagree with each other, and we're going to work through. Uh, I'm going to try to point out some of those disagreements. Of course, I'm going to show you what I think uh, these verses say. I don't often do this, but uh, Jim and I recorded a podcast for this week. We're going to talk about uh, millennial views. We're going to talk about eschatology. We're going to talk about end times, all the isms and the ists and all that fun stuff. So if you're interested, tune in the podcast later this week. Of course, I'm going to hit on some of that stuff uh, this morning, uh, but this is sermon. So we're going to see how the text, not only what it says, but what it means for us. And when Jesus, just like the prophets, when they talk about the future, they're talking about how we live and they're telling us how to live. So don't miss that. Our passage is full, chock full of teaching on how we are to live today. Matthew 24, uh, verses 1 to 28. Jesus left the temple and was going away. When his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who's on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. 
And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So, if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the, vulture, the vultures will gather. The grass withers, the flower fades, Lord of our God will stand forever. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, we come to this text with believing hearts, knowing that whatever take or interpretation or view we have on it, we rest knowing that you are king that you are in charge, that your gospel will go to the ends of the earth. The nations will bow down. I pray this morning that you would indeed give us understanding of your word, but more importantly, you would give application to our hearts, uh, to our behavior, uh, to our lives. As we live in light of this text, following you, hoping in you, resting in Christ our King, in whose name we pray. Amen. At the beginning of World War II, England, Great Britain, anticipated that they were going to be invaded by Germany, their enemy. It wasn't going to be a normal invasion. They knew the invasion was going to take the form of bombers, bomber planes, flying over England for days and days and weeks and weeks to drop bombs, not on really just the military, but on the homes and the lives and the schools and the gardens and uh, the life of people living in Great Britain. The leaders knew this was coming. They knew the horrors that would come to pass as waves and waves of bombers flew over Great Britain, and they faced the task, how to prepare our people for this? How do you prepare people for tragedy that's going to come? Well, they came up with some slogans. That was their strategy. And they put posters all over London. You've seen the most famous of the posters. It's the sermon title, right? Keep calm and carry on. There's bombs dropping all around you. Keep calm and carry on. Your backyard has been blown up. You've got to go to a bomb shelter every night. Keep calm and carry on. It came to be a slogan of the British people. It came to be a sign of that sort of stoic, stiff upper lip. We can make it. We can grin and bear it. And we can get through anything. Just keep calm and carry on. They did amazingly endure one of the worst bombings in military history, the, the bombing of London, the Blitz of London, just the Blitz. Uh, and they endured it and they made it through on the other side. Jesus, as a leader and king of his people, 
knows that they are about to endure something much worse than an aerial bombing of their homes and their capital. They're going to endure invading armies, taking over their cities, their homes, and even their religious place of worship, the temple. But our Lord does not prepare his people by giving them a mere slogan to tough it out, right? Our God gives us all of Matthew 24 into Matthew 25, that we as his people then and now might endure trusting the plans of our king. That's what I want to show you overarching in this chapter is that we endure the pains of our age by trusting the plans of our king. Endurance, pressing on, not going astray is the the themes of the application from these verses born out of trust in the plans of our king. Endure the pain of our age by trusting the plans of our king. Now, the big question, what is Matthew 24? What is Jesus talking about in Matthew 24? You can go look at Mark 13 and Luke 21, and it's the same sort of Olivet discourse. It helps, but it's harder because it doesn't always match up with everything there. Let me just tell you a couple of options that people believe that you probably believe in some of these options. One option is that all of Matthew 24, or the vast majority of it, is looking forward to, or anticipating, not looking forward to, looking at the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple that's going to happen in the year 70. This is around, let's say, ballpark the year 30, right? So we're looking forward a 40-year history, and that this is all describing the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. That's one option of how people, some of you, read Matthew 24. Another option is to read Matthew 24, not looking at the near future, but looking at the distant future. That Matthew 24 is all about the return of Jesus. That all the imagery and all the language is about the ultimate tribulation and return of Jesus, right, at the end of the age and the ushering in of the new kingdoms and the new earth. Some of you read it that way, from that perspective. When I read Matthew 24, I see both of those things. So I'm cheating, right? I'm going to take both of your views. I think Matthew 4 tells us, has two horizons for us. I think within this language, Jesus is telling us about what's going to happen to Jerusalem. And I think he's telling us about what's going to happen at the ultimate and final return of Christ. I'm not alone in thinking this. I give you lots of books and commentaries that make this argument. The difficulty is understanding, well, what verses speak to what historical event? All right? And we're probably all going to come out of here with a different list of verses that talk about what different historical event. I include you in, at least this morning's sermon, all of these texts, and I'm going to explain, I believe, uh, look to the life in the church age between the first and second coming of Jesus, and they do focus on the historic destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. Why do I think that? Well, let's look at the text. Let's walk through the text together. Uh, The key here, there's two really keys to understanding this. One is the setting, and the other the questions the disciples ask. So look with me at the setting, chapter 24. They left the temple. Jesus has been in the temple for, what do you think, 10 sermons now? Is that how long we've been in the temple? Right On one day, one sort of afternoon of speech, the Tuesday of his last week in the temple, he's finally condemned the temple and he's left. It says, as they're going away, the disciples point out to him the buildings of the temple. Don't you love this? Hey, Jesus, did you see the temple over there? Pretty cool, huh? <laughs> look how beautiful, look how big that temple is. Now, remember, lots of these disciples, they're kind of country bumpkins, right? 
They're, they're kind of like staring up at the skyscrapers, right? It's so cool to be in the city and see this, this awesome temple. What they do is they, they go out, they leave Jerusalem, and they go in the, through the Kidron Valley. So they go down into a valley, and they come up the Mount of Olives. And from the Mount of Olives, they look back at Jerusalem. It's a pretty cool view if you've ever been there to look from the Mount of Olives and to see the Temple Mount and look into Jerusalem. So they're there looking at this pretty cool temple complex and they are there uh, the disciples seem to be admiring this temple that Jesus has just told them is going to be desolate right he says to them you see all that all that on the horizon all of that temple complex you see it all none of it's going to be left not one stone upon another that will not be thrown down now Thinking of stones stacked up on top of each other being thrown down is pretty impressive. If you've seen the Temple Mount, there's some pretty big stones. Ballpark, they're sort of the size of a shipping container, if you can picture that, right? They're huge. I mean, how many shipping containers could you fit in this room? I don't know, four, maybe six, right? Maybe. That's how big these stones are. You don't just push it over, right, and it falls off. These are massive stones. And Jesus says, this building... Every stone will be torn down. Look at their questions. Verse 3, they sit down on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately, and they're like, dude, what are you talking about? Right? That's the translation of the Greek, the real Greek of these verses, right? <laughs> they ask him, I want you to note this, the questions that they ask him. I really think this is the key to interpreting the whole chapter. Tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming, and the end of the age. So Jesus has told them the temple is going to be destroyed, and they, they want to ask him, when will that happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Because in their mind, that temple doesn't get destroyed until the Messiah comes back and brings in the new heavens and the new earth, right? I mean, you imagine like going on a trip to, to D.C., the tour guide shows you the Washington Monument, the Capitol, and, and the White House, and says, pretty soon it's all going to be destroyed. The whole Washington Monument is going to be a pile of rubble right there. Right? The White House is going to be burning ashes. Right? It's just going to be nothing. And you're thinking to yourself, wait, when's America going to be destroyed? Because right? you think all that stuff can't be destroyed and not also be the end of everything. The end of the age rights of our nation. Jesus' answer is going to show that they're mistaken in their question. They look at a future where they're going to see the destruction of the temple and they assume that has got to also be the end of everything, the end of this age and the return of Jesus. Jesus answers their two questions in the rest of Matthew 24. And the way he answers them shows us those are two different events. The difficulty for interpreters is which answer is talking about which event. So let's work through that. Because Jesus, I believe, in this first section, verses 4 to 14, answers the Second question first. The second question is, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Now, what is the, the sign or the signs that they are to look for? Jesus uses a metaphor in verse 8. Look at that metaphor. He says, all these are but the beginning of birth pains. So he is comparing the suffering that is to come to the people of God as being in labor, right? Some of you have been in labor. Some of you have been 
helping someone that's in labor, right? I remember before my first was born, 17 years ago, going to a childbirth class and thinking, what in the world is this, right? There's a whole new world uh, that I never knew about. And they're describing what's going to happen. And it's not all that fun, right? What are some of the pains that go into childbirth? And Jesus is saying that this age in anticipation of what is to come is like, is analogous to childbirth. Lots of signs of labor, of birth pains. And we'll look at those just one second. Before we look at them, notice verse 6. He's going to name wars and rumors of war. And he says, see, there's not alarmed, and this must take place. And then verse 6 ends, but the end is not yet. What I think is going on is Jesus describing all of these pains. And it's not just in verse 2 and 3. All these verses are describing the pain, the general birth pains of this age. That's my first point. A lot of context to get here. Two points this morning. We're going to look at the general birth pains of this age. And then we're going to look at the greatest birth pain of this age as Jesus lays it out for us. Verses 4 to 14, general birth pains. Verses 15 to 28, the great birth pain of this age. As Jesus is going through the signs, back up in verse 4, there's lots of discouraging birth pains, right? Things that you don't want to go through. Look at some of the ones that he mentions. He begins in verse 4. See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. This is a birth pain we might describe as spiritual deception. There will be spiritual deception. We're going to come back to this. False prophets, false Christs seeking to lead the people of God astray, off the path. A second discouraging pain is political destruction, verses 6 and 7. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet, verse 7. For nation will rise against nation and kingdoms, kingdom against kingdom. There will be war. This age, these signs of what's going on is marked by wars and rumors of war, political destruction. In verse 7, we have a third birth pain. It's natural disaster. Famines and earthquakes. You know what those are. Verse 9 to, 10 to 11, we have a fourth birth pain. We have personal death. He goes to a pretty dark place here to describe persecution and martyrdom for those who follow him and who suffer and die in his name for following Jesus. It's a pretty significant, pretty brutal birth pain as Jesus describes it. Verse 12 is a fifth and final one. He says, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. I'm going to call this moral decay. Moral decay. Not lawfulness, lawlessness. And the love of many will grow cold. I wonder if any of that sounds familiar to you. I mean, did you read the newspaper this morning before you came to church, right? You go on this afternoon, you log on to Facebook. What are you going to see on Facebook? You're going to see religious leaders leading people astray. You're going to see wars and rumors of war. 
you're going to see natural disasters. You're probably going to see stories of persecution and martyrdom. And you are definitely going to see moral decay, right? I believe this describes the age between the times. Between the first advent, the first coming of Jesus, and the second coming of Jesus. I believe that this is not unique to the 40 years between this and uh, the destruction of Jerusalem. But rather these words and this language describes all of this age. From the resurrection to the return of Jesus. When I was in that childbirth class with my wife, just a young, know-nothing, first-time father, uh, I heard all of these things were going to happen. And let's just put it mildly, I was alarmed, right? <laughs> I was overwhelmed. I was concerned. I was frightened. I was panicking. There's got to be another way, right? There's got to be something else we can do for this, right? <laughs> what does Jesus specifically tell us when we see the birth pains in verse 6? See that you are not alarmed. Don't see all this stuff and freak out. It's supposed to come. It will come. It is descriptive of life in this age between the first and the second coming. It's not all bad, though, because he counterbalances these discouraging pains on the one side with encouraging promises on the other. Verses 13 and 14 each contain an encouraging promise for us. Look at verse 13. He says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. The promise of personal salvation. The promise of enduring on the path and not let astray to the end will be saved. Now, I want to be clear here. Jesus teaches, all of the Bible teaches, we are not saved by our endurance. We are saved by faith alone. Right? The faith that saves is a faith that endures, okay? Faith that does not endure is not faith, is not the description of faith. We don't have to particularly worry of, I became a Christian so many years ago, but now I have to try really hard to endure until the end or else I won't be saved. That's not the warning Jesus is giving. He is giving that faith in Jesus, simple faith in Christ endures all of this other chaos endures through all of the birth pains, all the stuff that would alarm the rest of us. Faith in Christ endures. I think whatever your take on these verses, you can sympathize with this application that God calls us to endure. We live in a fallen world. We live in a challenging age. We live with all sorts of discouraging pains around us. We live between the resurrection and the return of Jesus. And we are not to look around and panic. We're not to scroll through Facebook and get utterly discouraged. He teaches us and he tells us and he, he calls us as the bombs drop, right? As the chaos grows around us. Trust Christ. Be patient. Endure the hardships of this world. Particularly, he reminds us in his gospel that this life, this age, this time is not the time of the glory and the crown. It's a time of suffering and the cross. That's what Jesus is going to do right now. And that's the path we walk until his return, 
into his glorious, victorious, triumphant kingdom. The other promise here, the other encouraging promise is verse 14. It's not personal salvation, it's the promise of gospel proclamation. And this is a pretty good sign. If all the normal stuff is going on, right, during labor, well, it's a sign that something pretty good is going to happen, right? Life is going to be born. In the midst of all of this discouraging, alarming birth pains, something incredible is happening. Something is being grown and born into this world. And that is the kingdom of God. Look how he says it in verse 14. This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. The birth pains are not a sign that we shut it down and go home, right? It is the, the, the very atmosphere, the very world, the very opportunity for the gospel to go forth. Hardship and persecution is not God closing doors in our face. It's rather him opening doors that his gospel would go to the very ends of the earth. Where might God be opening a door for you? Where might you be wrongly interpreting difficulty in life as a closed door when really it's an open door through which God will proclaim his gospel? The gospel goes forth. We endure the pain of birth in this age But there's one real specific pain that Jesus gets to. He answers, beginning in verse 15, the first question. Remember our questions? What will be the sign of the coming of the age? He's given us a bunch of signs. Those signs mean the end is not yet. That's what happens before the end. But the disciples' first question, when will these things be? What are these things? The toppling of the stones. Now he answers that in verse 15. I want to show you secondly in our text the great birth pain of this age. In the midst of all that bad stuff, there's one worst of all. And that is the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. We begin in verse 15. Jesus says, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. We could go back. We're not going to this morning. We go back to multiple places in the Old Testament prophetic book of Daniel that speaks of this language of an abomination of desolation. Uh, the, The actual language in Daniel is more like abomination that causes desolation. And Jesus is telling us, He understands what Daniel means, because a lot of us are confused by it. He understands, and he is now going to let the reader of Daniel understand by giving us the interpretation of what Daniel's looking forward to when he uses the phrase, the abomination that causes desolation. An abomination is something detestable to God. What's detestable to God, what Daniel looks forward to, is pagan idols in the worship of the temple. Look how he says it. Uh, standing in the holy place. Pagan symbols and idols and worship 
in the holy place, in the holiest of holies. Abomination that causes desolation, destruction, emptiness. We've already seen the word desolate. We saw it last week at the end of the woes of Matthew 23, where Jesus says to them, see your house is left to you desolate. What house? The temple. That's where they are. He's saying there's nothing left here. Remember last week, there's nothing in the temple but hypocrisy and empty religion. It's already desolate. There's nothing here. And that is an abomination to God. That Jesus comes to the temple and he finds nothing. The temple is supposed to be where God meets with his people. It is the central place of the religion. It is the holiest place of all the land. But Jesus tells us that in his age, in his day, the temple has become no longer a blessing. It's become a stumbling block. All that external religion under the hip, 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 hypocrisy of the leaders of the day has emptied the temple. So it is desolate. So what is left now that the rebellion of the people of God has reached its full is the judgment of God will come. Verses 16 to 20 describe what that's going to be like. Verse 16, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. The, 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 the image here is it's, it's the, the smoke alarm going off, right? You don't have time to go pack a bag. You don't have time to go get your favorite things around the house. You got to get out and you got to get out now. And it's so bad, it's going to be hard for pregnant women on that day when the armies surround Jerusalem and it's time to flee. It's going to be hard on those nursing with infants because it'll be harder for them to flee as the armies surround Jerusalem. It's going to be so bad, you better hope it doesn't happen in winter where it's harder to flee. You hope it doesn't happen on the Sabbath or it's even harder to flee. And then Jesus gives us these haunting words. For then there'll be the great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. You could go back this afternoon or this week and read in your history books what happened in the coming decades in Jerusalem. You know that during those days, the, the, the Roman leaders ruled over the Jewish people there. And the Jewish people grew more and more fed up with it. And they rebelled more and more. And ultimately, in the end of, towards the end of the, the decade of the 60s, right? The, of the, the original 60s. They began to rebel. And they began to rebel seriously and violently. And the Romans came in and crushed the Jewish rebellion. Crushed it so much. They surrounded Jerusalem. Luke talks about this in Luke 21, the version of this. The armies surround Jerusalem. They lay siege to it. And hundreds of people die. And when they finally get in, the general orders burn it all down. But save the temple. Interestingly, he gives this order. Well, the order is ignored. The temple is burned down. It burns so bad that all of the gold around the temple melts and trickles down into the cracks of the stones. So when the greedy Roman soldiers entered to the temple and they wanted the gold, what do they do? They pushed off stone after stone. 
and they crushed the temple so that no stone stood on top of another. And that was the end for the Jewish people in Israel and in Jerusalem. It is the darkest hour in Israel's history. It leads to a dispersion to the surrounding areas, to the very ends of the earth. They continued for centuries and millennia. Nothing like that for the nation of the people of God before or after. But we read that. We wonder, does this only describe Jerusalem? I mean, this is bad. One preacher says, the divine judgments in history are rehearsals of the last judgment. You know what a rehearsal is. Right? You got the show on Saturday. You got rehearsal on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, right? You're, you're sort of the dry run. All the pieces aren't there. You're sort of getting everything together. This means is where we see these snippets of judgment throughout history. They are merely rehearsals for the final judgment. And there's patterns there. I mean, the first judgment of God coming uh, in Noah's day. He was destroying the, the whole world. But Noah and his family, they were to flee to the ark. And there they would find safety. And then some generations later, the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, in their rebellion, in their lawlessness, the wrath of God fell. And what do you remember what God said in that day? Escape to the mountains. Matthew 24, the fill of the unrighteousness is done to the top. The wrath of God comes and he says, flee to the hills. You see, in wrath, God always provides a way for escape. The ark, the hills, the mountains. The psalmist says, I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? The answer, not from the hills. My help comes from the Lord. When God, through Jesus, calls the people of his generation to flee to the mountains. He's calling each of us to flee to Jesus. He's telling us there is a wrath that is to come. He's telling us there is no safety and security in this earthly temple. It is gone. In fact, Jesus dead and raised again is the new temple. He's a new place we meet with God. He's a new place we go for safety. He's a new place we go for holiness. It's the only place we go to be covered when the judgment of God comes, whether by water, by fire, by the invading armies of the world. Flee, Jesus says to him. Those stones won't protect you. Your righteousness won't protect you. The pierced hands of Jesus and the shed blood of the Messiah is the only safety when the judgment of God fully and finally comes. These verses speak of that great pain pointing us to the great judgment that is to come. The reason I believe that these verses speak of Jerusalem is because we see in verse 23, we pick back up the theme of false prophets. There are false prophets before Jerusalem falls and the false prophets continue after Jerusalem falls. This is what happens. Big events in the world bring out false prophets, right? 
When chaotic stuff is happening in our nation or in our world, you can guarantee there will be a rise of false prophets. And you can guarantee that we as Christians are more susceptible in those times than we are in ordinary peaceful times, right? When everything is scary around us, we are susceptible of going somewhere not Jesus. And he warns in these final verses of our section, do not go follow the prophets. Do not go out to them. Do not go believe in the false Christ because, verse 27, the lightning, as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. He's saying, you're not going to miss it. And if some false preacher tries to tell you you've missed it, he's lying. Because you don't miss lightning that goes from the east to the west. And there's this weird figure of speech it ends with about vultures where the corpse is. I think it's just a figure of speech to say you can see where a corpse is because all the vultures are around. You can't miss it, right? You can't miss the return of Jesus. But what's wrong with us? That we have to be warned over and over again, calm down. Don't go out to them. You're easily, I'm easily deceived. Don't do it. I think our final application from these verses we are to endure to the end we are to proclaim Christ to the ends of the earth we are to flee to Christ and him alone today and I think this final section encourages us towards discernment that we of all people must be a discerning people we must know who the real Christ is and who the false Christs are we must not be alarmed by the words of the false prophets. Let me encourage you to pursue discernment in confusing times. Let me encourage you to be patient. Proverbs says, the one who states his case first seems right until somebody else comes along. How do we grow as discerning people? We're patient. We're humble. That means we're ready to admit we're wrong. That's hard, isn't it? But humility means maybe I read that wrong. Maybe the one I thought was a true prophet is actually a false prophet. We have humility enough to listen and to accept that. Thirdly, how do we exercise discernment? We must do it in community together. I've found the most isolated people are sometimes the most vulnerable people. We read, we study, we live together in community as iron sharpens iron. Because we live in an age with great pains. And Jesus warns us, we are easily led astray. Don't be led astray. Follow him. Endure the pain of our age by trusting in the plans of our king. I've got a little sticker in my office a friend gave me. It's a rework of that World War II slogan, right? It says, uh, uh, keep, uh, keep calm and carry on. Sticker in my office says, trust Christ and calm down. I love it. That's what, this ver- that's what this whole chapter is. Trust Jesus and calm down. Dear saints, trust the plans of our king that you too may endure the pains of our age. Let's pray. Lord, I pray and thank you tonight, or this morning rather, that you, Lord Jesus, are on the throne. That you have conquered death itself. That even the tragedies of this world and this life are in your hands, and you are in control and sovereign over it all. Lord, teach us to calm down and trust you. Grow us in discernment individually and together. Lord, help us to endure individually and together. 
Lord, might we as a church uh, see the, the, the signs around us and not shrink back, but pray.